Thank you so much to our children's choirs, our young musicians choir uh, there for leading us. They did a wonderful job. We can tell that our future is indeed in very, very good hands. We continue this morning our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke, and now we're in Luke chapter 6 and verse 17 through 45, life in the kingdom. What does it mean to be a follower of this rabbi Jesus. This is the first time in Luke's gospel where we actually learn how we're to be different than the world. What does it look like to be a disciple? Jesus now in our passage speaks both directly to his disciples and his would-be disciples. And as he's coming down from the mountain in verse 17, there is a multitude of disciples and a throng of people who have gathered. They have heard that this rabbi Jesus has power over disease and power over demons. And, well, the crowds have gathered in almost in a mystical manner. Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. And all the multitude were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. So the crowds were gathered around, reaching out, trying to just touch Jesus so that they could be healed. Well, in verses 20 through 23, we have the Beatitudes. Look at, look at verse 20. And turning his gaze on the disciples, he began to say, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn you. Your name is evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. These are known as the Beatitudes. Beatitude comes from a Latin word which really finds its root in a Greek word which means fortunate. Makario, blessed, happy. Originally it meant those who are happy by all the good things of the world. Those who have worldly well-being. Those who have wealth and prosperity and health, they are fortunate. They are happy. They are blessed. But now Jesus reverses this word, the definition makario, blessed or happy, and now he looks to the lens of the kingdom. According to the kingdom of God, our happiness has nothing to do with our external circumstances. Our happiness has to do with our inward allegiance. The difference for being blessed or happy in the kingdom of God is our happiness has nothing to do with our external circumstances, whether we're poor or whether we're not, but rather has to do with our inward allegiance. Are we committed to God? Our happiness is not based upon our accomplishments. It is not based upon our accumulations. Our happiness is a blessed state of being part of the kingdom of God. Well, look at the first beatitude. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. 
Now, Matthew adds a little bit in his version. Matthew's version says, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. For yours is the kingdom of God. Well, not in Luke. Just blessed are the poor. Turn back to Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. We shouldn't be surprised that the poor are blessed for the kingdom of God. For in that inaugural sermon in Nazareth, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord, 418, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to whom? To the poor. In that Nazareth sermon, there in that little synagogue, Jesus says, I have been anointed to bring the good news of the kingdom to the poor. So back now to, to chapter 6. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom. What he's saying is this. The poor have a better chance at the kingdom than the rich. We might not like that, but that's, that's what he says. Money brings momentary happiness. It, it brings a sense of self-assured arrogance. But the poor don't, don't have that here. And so the poor are looking and longing for a new king and a new kingdom. Their deal's not too good down here. Some of the rich are happy right here, right now, with the way things are but not the poor. You see, being poor is a happy state in the sense that it opens both the hearts and the hopes of the poor for another chance, another day. So Matthew captures the essence of the humility of the poor when he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will be looking for a new kingdom and they'll be looking for another king. Life has pushed them to the margins. They are pushed to the outside. They're not on the inside. They're not the haves or the have-nots. And they're looking and longing for the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are poor. It's easier for the kingdom to come to you. Look, beatitude number two. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Well, Matthew extends this one too. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but not Luke. Blessed are you who hunger, and not just you're hungry, but you're hungry right now. This isn't a, a might-be scenario. They are hung, hungry now. It's not hypothetical, but notice what will happen to them. Or you shall be satisfied. It's a divine passive. God will fill you. God will satisfy you. How many times in the Psalms or in Isaiah is the kingdom of God likened to a banquet where God is feeding people and satisfying their hunger? And in fact, just momentarily in Luke, in Luke 9, we'll have the feeding of the 5,000. That is an instance where God fills the stomachs of the poor. They've come to hear Jesus teach. They have nothing to eat, and he fills them. Blessed are you who hunger now. Beatitude number three. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. 
weeping for ancient Israel was during the time of exile when they were away from their motherland. They were deported. They were in a foreign land, and they wept. Or in Ecclesiastes, we have a comparison between weeping and laughing. Weeping and laughing. Weeping is the release of sorrow, and laughing is the release of joy. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Well, the fourth one, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. The idea here is for your name. Now, this name here probably doesn't mean the name Batson, Jones, or Smith. It means the name Christian. If you're made fun of, you know, the the word Christian was actually, well, it was a derogatory term. It was a way to make fun of those. It was a, you're a Christ man. You're a, you're a Christ woman. It's used that way in James and some of Peter's literature. It's a negative term. So he says, when you are torn down because of your name. He doesn't mean your personal name. He means your name as a follower of Christ. Blessed are you when someone tears down your name. Look again at verse 22. It happens for the sake of the Son of Man. They are hated. They are ostracized. They are insulted. They are defamed. Your reward in heaven will be great. Those receiving the ridicule should now jump for joy because in the future they will have a reward. Well, that's the Beatitudes. Blessed are you. Not like the world is happy, but rather happy in the kingdom of God. Not because of your outer circumstances, but because of the future you have with God. Those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are made fun of. Well, now we go to the woes. The question for us this morning is which crowd are we in? Would God speak to us with the blessings Or would God speak to us with the woes? Look at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you're receiving your comfort in full. And woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Well, I want you to compare and think about the balancing act here. Blessed are the poor. Woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Woe to you who are well fed now. Blessed are you who weep now. Woe to you who laugh now. Blessed are you when men hate you and cast insults and spurn your name. Woe to you when men speak well of you. These are serious words from our Lord. The rich find themselves, we are the rich, are we not? They find themselves in a precarious predicament because our love for the things of this world become a stumbling block for our entrance into the kingdom of God. 
Later, Jesus will say in Luke 16, you cannot love both God and money. The rich find themselves trapped in a pleasant prison, unable to think about a new king and a new kingdom and a new day. Well, of all the themes in the New Testament, I one time I tried to list out the top 10 themes in the New Testament. If you read the New Testament from beginning to end, what are the top 10 themes that you hear occurring over and over again? And amongst those themes is what I call the great reversal. That those on the bottom shall in the future be on the top. That those who are poor now shall in the kingdom have great riches. It's this great reversal. It's the least expected. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. How many different ways does Scripture say this? Those who are rich and full and content and extolled. Well, on that day, it's a pineapple upside down cake. It, it turns. It, it flips. And the bottom becomes the top. And the top becomes the bottom. The rich live... We live under the awful burden of our riches. The rich live under the awful burden of their riches. When the sixth Duke of Westminster realized at the age of 16, can you imagine this? That he was going to be heir to his family's immense fortune, he dreaded it. The responsibility of being in charge of all that money and passing on to the next generation, knowing that he himself hadn't actually earned it, the isolation. Well, the sixth Duke of Westminster died in August of 2016, and his son, Hugh Grosvenor, inherited that same burden, that same pleasant prison of riches. He inherited $13 billion dollars. On the one hand, he instantly became, at age 25, one of the richest men in the world at $13 billion. But on the other hand, the money had made his father absolutely miserable. His father once said, given the choice, I would have never been in charge of all of this. Lest we don't think there's a burden of riches, I found a counselor, Thayer Willis, who actually has a counseling business to help the rich who deal with the psychological challenges of their wealth. The, the question for all of us who have plenty to eat, those of us who know where our meal's coming from tomorrow, those who don't work for a day's wage, like the poor of the New Testament is, do we own our wealth or does our wealth own us? Do we own our wealth, or does our wealth own us? Amongst all those woes, I, I think the, the most curious one is the one that says, woe to those of whom men speak well. Woe to you, blessed are those who are ostracized and criticized for the name Christian, but woe to those of whom men speak well. Why is that? Because when we are being complimented, when flattery comes our way, we're not able to leave the room of praise to God, are we? 
We're so busy thinking about ourselves and how great we are, we forget that we are not to praise ourselves, but rather we are to praise God. When men speak well of us, we forget that only God is good. Verses 27 through 35, we have the hardest command Jesus ever gave. Now you think about Scripture, what is the hardest thing that Jesus ever asked his disciples to do? I can think of some hard ones. Go and sell all that you own and give it to the poor. He said that to the rich young ruler. Do you remember that? That's a hard saying. He just hung his head and walked away sad because he wasn't going to do it. That's a hard thing. Or or if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily and follow me. That's a hard thing, is it not? He asked some hard things. If you want to follow me, well, then you have to lose your life, and he who loses his life will actually gain his life. Be willing to die for the kingdom, that's a hard thing to ask. And I think about old Peter when he's in the boat, and Jesus says, as Jesus is walking on water, come on out and join me. Let's do some water walking. Getting out of the safe boat into the water, that's a hard thing because men don't walk on water, and there's no safety cord. There's no life jacket. It's the storm. Come on and and walk on the waves. That's a hard thing. Of all those things, I don't think any of them is the hardest thing. I think the hardest thing comes in, in Luke 6, 27. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And in case you don't know what that means, he gives you some examples. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn and give them the other cheek. If someone steals your coat, well, if you give them your shirt too, you're taking their act of violence and making it your act of generosity. So you give more than they ask, he says. Love your enemies. Look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even the sinners love them. Verse 35, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and then our reward will be great in heaven. We will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind and ungrateful to evil men. Of all the things that Jesus ever asked us to do, surely the most challenging is to love our enemies. When's the last time you prayed for an enemy? When's the last time you asked God to bring all his blessings upon the one that you don't like? When have you prayed for her? When have you prayed for him? Maybe it's the father in your life. Maybe the one who always bragged on your sister and never even noticed you. Maybe it's the person at work who always takes credit for your work and actually treated you in such a way and made political alignments in such a way that you're unemployed and you got the shaft and she got the promotion and they got it all wrong. When's the last time you prayed for her? Maybe it's that in-law who tries to control your family or try to control your life. I don't know who it is for you, but I know that the hardest thing Jesus ever asked you to do is to 
Love your enemies. Maybe, maybe it's an, an ex-husband, an ex-wife. Love your enemies. It's one of the most unbelievable stories that I have ever heard. A reverend by the name of Walter Everett conducted the wedding of the man who murdered his son. Walter Everett conducted the wedding of the man who murdered his son. In fact, Everett showed up before the parole board and testified on behalf of his son's murderer so the murderer could get out of prison to lead the rest of his life as a free man. And he actually signed up to conduct the wedding of his son's murderer. It was at the Golden Hill United Methodist Church in Bridgeport. The murderer, Carlucci, said, I don't understand how he loves me like this. He said, I have a daughter who's 13 years old, and if anyone ever hurt my daughter, I would hurt him in return. I wouldn't be doing this. About a month after Carlucci was in prison, he got a letter from the Reverend Walter Everett, the father of the victim of the murderous act. They started riding back and forth, and finally the reverend showed up to visit his son's murderer, and they talked for a while, and when he got up to leave, they went to shake hands, and it became an embrace. In fact, Carlucci said, before I ever asked her to marry me, I asked Walter Everett if, if he would do the wedding, because he said, and I quote, he is my best friend. He is my best friend. When they asked Reverend Walter Everett why he ever befriended his, his son's murderer, instead of hating him, he said, in my ministry, I had known the families of victims before, and I watched them live out their whole life in hatred, and I was not going to become Carlucci's second victim. I was going to become his friend. The hardest thing that Jesus ever asked you to do is to love your enemies. And Jesus isn't 2,000 years ago on that level ground in Luke asking that multitude of disciples to love their enemies. Jesus is asking you to do that today. Just as surely as that command applied to them, it co that command applies to us. Love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do good to those who would wrong you. Why, even the ungodly are good to their friends. If you're kind to your friends, if you pray for your friends, if you take your friends out to lunch, how are you any different than the world? The distinguishing mark of a follower of the Messiah is that we love and do good, not to our friends and family alone, but rather we love and we do good to evil men. For God himself is good to evil men. Love those who hate you. Well, then he has that wooden beam in verses 41 through 42. It's kind of a a caricature, is it not? Shows a guy with a two-by-four in his eye, and he's got 
kind of surgical tweezers. He's trying to take a little splinter out of another guy's eye. Big two by four coming out of his, but he's trying to get that little splinter out of his brother's eye. You know the lesson there. Why is it that it is so easy for me to see your faults and so hard for me to see my own? Have you ever noticed that? You know what mental health professionals tell us? I think they're right. I don't always think they're right, but I think they're right on this one. That what we don't like in others is really what we don't like in ourselves. That you've seen that person that always keep a, a scorecard and they can criticize everything about everybody else. They're letting other people be a mirror for them. And so what they don't like about her is really what they don't like about themselves. What they don't like about him is some weakness within themselves that they don't like. What we really despise in others is what we despise in ourselves. Take the two by four out of your own eye before you become a fault finder with your friends. Then he tells us about the tree. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. And he says... Who we are on the inside will ultimately determine the kind of fruit that we produce for the kingdom of God. Verses 43 through 45. The good man, the good tree, produces good fruit. In our passage today, Jesus descends from the mountain. He finds a level place. It begins blessing people. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who are weeping for you will laugh. Blessed are those who are criticized and ostracized. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are filled. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you who have good things said about you. Woe to you. I'm going to ask you to do the hardest thing. Love your enemies. And look within your own heart for sin rather than the heart of your brother. Which of these words does Jesus speak to you? Which do you receive this morning? God's blessing us with beatitudes or God's warning us with woes? Let those who have ears to hear the instruction, our Lord's first instruction to those who dare call him Lord. Let us pray. God, these are hard things. We do want to get caught up in what we have and We do sometimes think we're self-made men and women. Sometimes we do forget those who weep. Sometimes we pause too long when we hear the praise of men. Sometimes we despise our enemy and we grin when they fall rather than doing the God thing and loving even those who would wish us the worst. Oh, Jesus, we called you Lord earlier in Luke, and now, now we see what that looks like. You ask us hard things, and only 
with your word and your spirit. Can we be a follower? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.